Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession today comes from Proverbs 28, verse 4. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. A quick glance at your news feed or listen to the hourly late radio broadcast reminds you that the tenor of our nation, dare say our globe, clashes of right and wrong, and it clashes very shrilly. Wicked philosophies and wicked actions abound around us. So as Christians, how do we respond? How do we stand on these things? A powerful means of opposing wickedness is a Christian life well lived by faith. We can make a strong statement and mighty illustrations for truth and wisdom by our actions. We may not even need to open our mouth to argue for righteousness and godliness. Keeping the law contends with the wicked. It fights and opposes them. But forsaking the law praises the wicked. If you cheat and compromise God's holy standard of righteousness, you praise sinner, praise the sinner for their choices. You agree with them. Just you agree with the wickedness just like they do. Consider these subversive acts against evil. Suppose rather than believing that a picket line at the abortion clinic is the only fight against the murder of unborn children, instead love and train your children by God's word, gently leading and guiding them. A loving family with godly and obedient children will say more against abortion than most discussions with the mindless murderers and the emotionally wounded co-conspirators that enter the baby-killing facilities. Angry or distraught about the rebellious nature of our culture today? Make sure you respect the civil authorities. Outwork your colleagues to respect the company's authority. Love your wife. Respect your husband. Sick of hearing about evolution? Live like you know the Creator. Live like you were made for His glory, and He has the right to dictate the terms of your life. Glorify Him in all that you do, and speak of Him as your Maker. None of us can fully keep the law of God, but trusting in Jesus and resting on Him for our salvation and for the strength to live the life He has assigned to us is a tremendous force against the wickedness of this world. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, invite you to kneel where you are, if you're willing and able. Well, once again, it is good to be with God's people and working through the truths that God is proclaiming clearly in his word and has proclaimed throughout the years and the ages. God does it in many, many different ways, but clearly through his word, through his son, and by his spirit. In his 
great allegory on Christian living. John Bunyan records in a pictorial sense the life and journey of a believer. And he uses great pictorial language and writing to make us, help us understand it. And one of his great pictures, one of his great descriptions is as Christian is ending his life and getting ready to enter the celestial city as he's preparing for heaven. And there in that last chapter of of part one, Christian is there with his companion, and they they can see heaven, they can see the celestial city, but in front of them lies a wide, dark river. And Bunyan says that the pilgrims, especially Christian, began to despond in their minds and looked this way and that, and no way could be found by them to which they might escape the river. They must go through. They asked, is there any other way? And they were told, no, you must go through. And so as they enter the water, Christian begins to sink. And crying to his good friend, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head and all his waves go over me. Then his companion, whose name was Hopeful, said, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend. The sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian. So that he could not see before him. But hopeful. Had much to do to keep his brother's head above water. And sometimes he would be quite gone down. And then soon he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him by saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing by it to receive us. A Christian would answer, Tis you, tis you only they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, Hopeful said to Christian. Ah, brother, replied Christian, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins, he has brought me into the snare and has left me. Hopeful replied, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it said of the wicked, there are no bands in their death. Their strength is is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, and neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which hereforto you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw, as John Bunyan says, I saw in my dream that Christian was as a muse a while to whom also hopeful added this. Be 
of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes you whole. And when that Christian broke out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian, therefore, presently found ground to stand upon. And so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow. And they got over. Christian had quite a life. Leaving the city of destruction, seeking for the hope that he had read about in God's word. And along the way, he met many different obstacles. The slough, the spawn. He, he was carrying the heavy burden. He was tempted by sloth and sleep. He met up with giant despair in the doubting castle. He had to battle Apollyon. He was in the valley of the shadow of death. He had temptations and distractions. And he finally made it. And he was brought across because of hope. Where are we today in our journey? Are we battling some temptation? Are we battling some giant? Are we dealing with some despondency? Is there trouble in the land? There's trouble right here in River City. As we're reminded, life on this earth can get messy. It seems like all has gone awry. And we are losing the battle. Is there uncertainty? Do you have hardship? Are you tired? Oh, do we get tired? Are you being persecuted? Is there unbelief? In all of these things, like Christian, we need hope. A new day. Tomorrow's Monday. How often do we show up at work and everybody's like, oh, it's Monday. How, how can Monday be such a bad day when we've spent this on Sunday? Refueling our tanks and worshiping God and we show up on Monday and it's too hard to handle. Have we lost hope? We need hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to the Corinthians who were also struggling with a lack of hope. Now theirs wasn't so much a despondency as it was a weakness and an inability of self-discipline and faithfulness. This is his first letter to the Corinthians, but it's his third missionary journey. This is his Ephesus. Paul hears of what's going on in the church at Corinth, and he writes this letter to them, a letter of correction, to make them aware of what they had, what, the, what doctrinal and practical issues they were dealing with, where they had gone astray. And he wanted to help them 
redirect their path. Corinth was a city of wealth, a city that was prominent, trading center. But in that wealth, they were also known for licentiousness, luxury, immorality, vicious behavior. In fact, the church itself, Paul indicates, was kind of leading the culture. They were practicing lifestyles that not even the Gentiles would say should be practiced. So as we look around our life today, are we there? Is that, is that, do we get a sense that we're in Corinth? The culture has gone to hell. That even in the church there doesn't seem to be any respect for the word of God. Well, let's take a look at chapter 15 in Paul's first letter and see what hope he gave to them. Not only did he give them correction, but he gave them hope. And the hope that he dealt with was that of understanding, a good, proper understanding of the resurrection of Christ. Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says that there would be multiple uh, sources of this misunderstanding. Paul begins in the first portion of chapter 15, the verse, first 19 verses, kind of laying out the fact that about the resurrection and the work that he had done. And then it is possible as, uh, as you study scripture that that's the local Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any spiritual life, any immortality. They were all about the, the physical, right? They, they only focused on the present life and living here. We see Christ dealt with them in the, the Gospels. Paul deals with them in Acts 23. They were upset whenever someone mentioned the resurrection. And they made it their effort to dispel that belief. It was also common thought among the philosophers of the day. That there's no resurrection. You live, you die, right? You're born, you live, you die. And that's all there is to life. It may be that the false teachers that Paul mentioned in his letter to Timothy, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they were teaching that the resurrection had already passed. And they had to do, Paul dealt with the Thessalonians on that as well. So from some source, and Calvin would conclude primarily it's the Sadducees, who have worked their teachings among the Christians there, that they were under a delusion that this is all there is to life. And so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. And Paul, in verses 20 to 28, reminds the Corinthians and us, that Christ is risen, Christ is risen today. 
and deed. And because of that, we have hope. Beginning at verse 20. He says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul makes a clear statement of the fact that Christ is risen. Now at Easter time, if you hear that, we always have a reply, right? Christ is risen What a wonderful statement that is to make at Easter. But how much more would that be every day? Christ is risen. Christ is risen. What a great truth that we soon forget and leave at the Easter season. What if we woke up every morning... Christ is risen. risen What if when we ate breakfast, Christ is risen? risen What if we show up Monday morning, Christ is risen? risen We're on break at lunch, Christ is risen. risen We take our afternoon break, Christ is risen. We join in our fellowship at the evening and supper. Christ is risen. We take our needs to our Father, our loving Father at the end of the day. Christ is risen. That simple truth changes And that's why Jerry Bridges in his book, Pursuit of Holiness, reminds us we need to preach that gospel to ourselves every day. Because too soon we're fighting Apollyon. Too soon we're in the Slav Despond. Too soon we're tempted to go to Vanity Fair. And we need to remember that Christ is risen. It is a fact. It was proclaimed in the Proto-Evangelicum in Genesis 13. It was clearly predicted by Christ through his ministry here on earth. It was witnessed personally by hundreds, by hundreds of others. They witnessed Christ. And now Paul here in in 1 Corinthians 15 clearly exposits and explains that the resurrection of Christ is true, it's factual, And it's the foundation for our faith. And if Christ has not risen, if Christ has not resurrected, we should go home now. There's no reason for us to be here if Christ has not risen. So believe it. It's true. And it changes everything. Also here we see that the resurrection of Christ, through that, he became the first fruits of those who have died or fallen asleep. This idea of first fruits is an Old Testament feast, an Old Testament uh, celebration. And it was usually held in the early spring, just before harvest. I know in our culture, we're used to harvest being in the fall. But for the Jews, first harvest was in the early spring. And as we read in Deuteronomy 26, they would bring their first 
fruits. They would bring their first produce. No other harvesting could take place until the first fruits were brought and offered to God as worship. It was a symbolic gesture. It was a reminder. As we read through, right? They were in Egypt. They were in bondage. They had no hope. And God worked with a mighty way and brought them to the promised land. Take Deuteronomy 26 and make it personal. I was in bondage to sin. I was, had no hope. My master, the father of lies, was unkind to me. And God reached out. And in a mighty hand brought me out to the land of promise. That is only possible as Christ is our first fruit of the resurrection, in his resurrection. He is the one who paved the way for us. Not only in his life, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. And we have hope someday that those that have gone before us will be resurrected. That if we pass on, we will be resurrected if we are in Christ. Christ is our first fruit. And interestingly, since first fruits was a spring feast, it was done at Passover. And when Christ was crucified at Passover, he rose on the day of the first fruits. That's when the first fruits were brought. It was three days after Passover. So Christ lived through the feast and through the Jewish traditions to communicate to us what he had done for us as our first fruit. So the resurrection of others is possible. Our resurrection is possible. More will follow. Christ as he is the first fruits. Not only is Christ's resurrection fact, not only is he the first fruit, but Christ's resurrection foils the enemy's plan. Satan, Sadducees, Jewish leaders, philosophers of the day, it doesn't matter where the false teaching comes from. They're all pressing us on all sides to undo this fact. Yet, like Christ, throughout the Gospels, and especially in the desert of temptation, when Satan offered him another way, another way across the river, another way around the cross and the resurrection, Christ resisted. Peter and John, as they were told by the Jewish leaders, you may no longer preach Christ and his resurrection. They went away joyful, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Paul, likewise, as he went out on his missionary journeys, was dealt, was, was faced constantly with obstruction and obstacles from Jewish leaders and philosophers all over this issue of the resurrection. And as Christ and the apostles and the faithful martyrs and missionaries and the faithful people of today proclaim that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, the enemy is put at bay. So Christ's resurrection is fact, 
Christ's resurrection is our first fruit. Christ's resurrection foils the enemy's plan. And Christ's resurrection gives us hope in four ways that Paul is going to point out here in the rest of this passage. So let's take a look at each of those quickly. First, in verses 21 and, two, 21 and 22, we see that the resurrection of Christ gives us hope in spite of the past. Starting with verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have a past that is hopeless. We, every single one of us, are sons and daughters of Adam. And by no work of ours, Adam blew it. He messed up. He was tempted and failed. And as his offspring... We inherit that. That is who we are. We are sinners. We can't help ourselves. We must sin. Because we are sons and daughters of Adam. That is our condition. We are enslaved like the Israelites in Egypt. We must make bricks without straw. We must do what the taskmaster says. The father of lies is unkind to us. That is who we are. And because of that, there is death. Death is real. Death is certain. Death is the end of this temporal life. Our past is a mess. And probably our personal pasts are, are a mess too, if, you, if we look through them. Right? How often do we try to do what's right and we fail? We, try, we set up those goals and we just, we get to number three and then we fall off. Some of us don't even make it through number one. We have great aspirations and then we get distracted. Squirrel. Right, something comes up that the old taskmaster says, this is good, and we give in to it. But while there is that hopeless past, that we are sinners and death will happen, there's also the promise that Christ, through Christ and his resurrection, we will be made alive. Right? That's the second part of it. By man came death. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. Why is that? Because Adam, though he sinned and will die, in Christ we shall be made alive. There's hope in spite of our past. Right? Adam, in the perfect situation, a perfect garden, never sinned in his life was tempted, decided to obey Satan rather than God, believed Satan, and he disobeyed God and brought sin and death. On the other hand, Christ, in the most desolate of deserts, hungry, 
and weary is approached by Satan. And in that moment, Christ believes God and resists Satan. First man falls. Second Adam gives us life. Death from our earthly father. Life from our heavenly father. Man is the sinner. Christ is the savior. Man is the offender. Christ is the victim. Never having done anything wrong. Never disobeying God. Always doing what is right and good. Always showing love and kindness and mercy. And yet he is the one who is falsely accused. He is the one who is killed. He is the one whose the wrath of God is poured out upon. And here we sit, complacent, forgetting that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. As we look at our past, anything that we've done that is good is not good enough. But also be encouraged because of Christ's resurrection. Anything that was bad is not too bad. We have hope in spite of our past. Secondly, in verses 23 and 24, Christ's resurrection gives us hope because of God's sovereign plan. But each one in his own order, right? They're going to be made alive. Each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Talk about that. Christ first is going to be resurrected. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So the resurrection of Christ was the first part of God's plan. God has not lost control. Things have not gone awry. God's not busy trying to make up plan B, plan C, plan D. This is God's plan. And the first one was that Christ would die, he would be buried, and he would be resurrected. And that has happened. And then the second stage of God's plan is that when Christ comes, there'll be a resurrection of those who are in Christ. Paul deals with this with the Thessalonians and with the, uh, the Corinthians, talking about uh, the Thessalonians, they were bemoaning that, oh, maybe they missed the resurrection. And what would happen to all those that have died? And for the uh, Corinthians, he talked about that judgment of the Bema Seat judgment. When the, the resurrected in Christ would come and God would examine their works, there would be wood, hay, and stubble, there would be precious stone and gold and silver. And he would reward our obedience. And then the third, the third resurrection is the end. As talked about in Revelation 20, that great white throne judgment. When the rest, when the unbelievers will be raised up. And they will be judged according to the Lamb's book of life. This reminds us, first of all, as I said, God has not lost control. He is working on his plan. It has never changed. It has been never thwarted. Peter reminds us of that. 
That Christ was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit got together. The Godhead got together and said, let's do something. And this was the plan they came up with. Christ, you will die. You will be resurrected and redeem my people. And finally, we need to know that there is that third stage, that there is a heaven and a hell. It's things we don't like to talk about. We like to talk about heaven, but we don't like to mention hell. Jonathan Edwards, in his Sinners in the Hands of a Angry God, says, Oh, sinner, consider the dreadful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready, and, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. That's the condition of man apart from God. That's the condition of every human being if they are only a son of Adam. But if they are a son of God, if they are in the resurrection of Christ, there is hope. They do not have to go to that last stage of the great white throne judgment. Do you think the resurrection of Christ is good news? Absolutely. And so not only is the resurrection of Christ hope, give us hope in spite of our past, and gives us hope because God is working out his plan, his sovereign plan. Thirdly, in verses 25 to 27, the resurrection of Christ gives us hope, or gives us hope to aid in our present uncertainty for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet and when he says all things are put under him it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted Christ's resurrection precedes and makes possible his reign if Christ had not resurrected he would not be reigning if he was not reigning he would not be working out the redemption of his kingdom. Christ is in the process right now of restoring his kingdom back to its righteous condition. That is what Christ is doing because he was resurrected. Philippians 2 in that great Christ hymn at the end reminds us that when Christ was humiliated, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Yet God has exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, will we do it stage two and receive reward for our good and bad? Or will we only receive it at stage three at the great right throne judgment where we are then cast into hell because we do not proclaim him as Christ the Lord in this life. There is much 
trouble going on, as we said. But because Christ is on his throne, because he is resurrected and is restoring his kingdom, we have hope. We can face Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Every day is a new day of God's gifts for us to open as Christ is restoring his kingdom. Are you looking for him? Is every day Christmas morning for you? Every day should be Christmas morning for the Christian. What's God have under the tree today? What's in my stocking today? What gift is he presenting today? Oh, the hope that the resurrection of Christ gives. Not gives for our past, gives it for God's plan. Hope because we have aid in our present uncertainty. And finally, in verse 28, we have hope for future glory. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. At the end of it, that God is God. Is that how we view our day? God is God. Is that how we view our future? This is all about God. I know too often, it's all about me. Oh, it's a tough day. Eric had a bad day today. Eric didn't get what he wanted. Eric didn't get to do what he wanted to do. Eric Young, they used to call me Pouty Pete. Hmm? That's my sister. They tell me a little bird would come and poop on my lip because I stuck it out so far. Is that what we do? Is that what people see us as Christians? We're, We're running around pouting because we're not getting our way? Or are we rejoicing because God is getting his way? Christ's resurrection directs our temporal daily life. We should obey. We should be thankful that Christ is ruling and obey his rule. Accept God's will. Whatever comes, God is bringing to us. We should trust his power. We should be willing to sacrifice daily. Bring those first fruits as Christ has been our first fruit. And then wait expectantly for God's work. And and Christ's resurrection also declares God's eternal glory. Just as in the parable of the property that has the treasure hidden on it, right? What does Christ tell us to do? What does Christ tell his listeners to do if a man comes to a property and knows that there is some gold buried in the middle of it? He should go sell everything he has and go purchase that property. And that's what the resurrection does for us. It gives us a hope. It's a treasure that is guaranteed. And we should give it all, right? Isn't that Christ told the rich and ruler? Sell all that you have and give it to the poor because you can never outgive God. There's a glory coming where God will be exalted. In the end, Christ, as he restores his kingdom and he gathers his people, he will then turn to the Father and he said, here it is. Job done. And we will all fall before God and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We will sing for eternity of the praises of our God. 
Why not get a start on it today? Let's practice a little bit in this life for what we're going to be doing for eternity. So the resurrection of Christ gives us hope in spite of our past. It gives us hope because God's working out his sovereign plan. It gives us hope to aid in our present uncertainty. And it gives us hope because of future glory. And as we conclude on these thoughts, I think the five solas of the Reformation remind us well of these truths. Sola fide. By faith alone, believe that Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Oh, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Sola gratia. We have been saved by grace. It's not what we've done, but it's the resurrection of Christ. We need to live in light of Christ's resurrection. Sola Scriptura, we must proclaim the truth of Christ's resurrection. Yes, there's going to be obstacles. Yes, there's going to be problems. But we can proclaim that truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to those who are hanging by a thread over the fires of hell. Solus Christus. It is by Christ alone. Hope. We have hope because of Christ's resurrection. And solo Deo Gloria. In the end, it's all to give God the glory alone. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May God's Spirit help us hear these words and rejoice. In his resurrection. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your resurrected Son. Thank you that he reigns over his kingdom and is restoring it all for you. Give us faith by your Spirit, strength and courage to know and believe. That you are worth it all. You are God. And you are working your salvation in us. Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ came into the world to save sinners. As we come to his table, we should rejoice that this work continues today. You may feel, however, that you have no right to come. You have sinned, maybe even grievously. And as a result, you may think humility requires that you refrain from this meal. But humility actually requires that you come, and that you come with boldness. This is what humility does because coming to the Lord's table is what God commands. He says to eat this bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of me. He is saying, remember my work of saving you, saving you by sacrificing my body and shedding my blood. 
So we should come and receive what he has done, not because of your worthiness, but because you have sinned. And we should come with boldness. God commands you and me, sinners, to come to him with boldness. But this is troubling to us because it is impossible to do. But God, who brought a universe out of nothing and our Lord Jesus out of the grave, can certainly do this. He does it through the power and efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ bled and died, you may come to this table with boldness. Because he was obedient to the point of death, you may be obedient and partake of this meal. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking with us the wine, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So brothers and sisters, come humbly and come boldly. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.